0: All right, church, those watching online, in the room, in the VHQ venue, in the lobby, welcome. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. 2020, as we've said, has been a crazy year. The, the year of 2020 has been so crazy that we have a whole new vocabulary, right? That's how you know something's crazy. It's like pandemic, right? We never knew what that word was really or never said it. Uh, social distancing, COVID-19, slow the curve. Well, I've got a new word. You may have heard it. It's more recent to me. Fidgetal. Have you heard that? is when you're both physical and digital at the same time. Okay, digital Okay, that's right. Um, and that's what we are as a church. That's what we've been since uh, June 25th, really now for 18 or 19 weeks, depending on how you count it. We have been digital. We've had in-person gatherings like this, started on Thursday night, uh, went to now, September 13th. Uh, we've had three on Sundays. And so we've been in-person as well as simultaneously online, live streaming these services as they're happening. Of course, always having the video and the sermon up afterwards. And so uh, a couple things that we've learned, and kind of we're trying to continue to have a, maybe over-communicate, clarify the kind of how we're thinking about everything. So a couple things. One, I think one thing we could all put our arms around and say we're all experiencing together is the priority of weekly worship. Whether you're watching online or whether you're here, it's got to be the priority of weekly worship. We'll get in this actually as we look at today's sermon, but the church has always prioritized the gathering on Sunday. The second thing that we've had to realize and kind of talk about is, and we said this a long time ago, but we do not create downloadable experiences. So, I mean, how do you, and we're trying to help with people who are watching online at home. We're glad that you are watching. How do you communicate the dramatic nature of baptism and what happens in a room when somebody publicly identifies with Christ? How do you communicate? It doesn't matter if you capture it in 4K. It's not transferable in the deepest sense. Uh, Communion, how do you do it? Well, we don't do it in in home. We we can't do it. We we try to communicate online, but it's difficult. In two weeks, we're going to do parent commissioning, child dedication. We're going to have families up here with their babies and they're saying, I want to dedicate them to the Lord and will you help us and will you pray for us? It's like, it'll be shown online, but it's not the same as being in the room. And so here's how, here's how we're thinking about it. We realize continually there's multiple categories of people, right? There's people who've come back fully fully reengaged their life. Some were more early adopters than others and some came more on Thursdays and some came back on Sundays, and, but we're here. Then there's a whole group that can't come back. Okay? We always have to say this, but, but it's real. Uh, and, and we know at least a dozen families that we know for sure. It's like they can't come back. Elderly parents, they're taken care of all the time. They're immunocompromised. They're clinically anxious. We get it. That's why we're streaming. There's a whole, there's a whole other category of you, and I have thought of how to say this this week, um, who you now, that it's open to come in person or online, you just decide every week what you're going to do. And you're confusing to, to us, okay? And, and it's, it's like, I, I, we, we think there's something unique and special that happens in the in-person gathering. We think there are dozens of conversations, often that happens uh, for each person when they come. There are intersections, there are relationships. There's something that happens in the moment when we're together. There's something that happens when we sing together, when we celebrate together. But then there's a third group and and it's the people who can come back, but they keep making excuses why they can't. And we don't, we love those people. We're we're here with grace and truth, but we're just having a conversation. And and it's interesting because, and I'm, I'm concerned for those people for multiple reasons, Um, One reason is, you know, I I knew a guy, and he talked about his very sick daughter. This is important to understand this. He said, my daughter was very, very sick. She had an illness for years. And there was a time in her teenage years where we realized you're gonna have this illness for a long time. And he said, one of the most important things we ever said to our daughter is, there's gonna be certain things you can't do because of your illness, and that's fine. And when when you genuinely can't do something because of your illness, you tell us, or you tell whoever you're with, and you don't do that thing because of your illness. But then there's gonna be times you're not going to wanna do something and you're gonna to wanna to use your illness as an excuse. Think pandemic, right? Everyone has the biggest hall pass in the world not to do what they don't wanna do. And here's what he said to his daughter. He said, if you use your illness as an excuse to not do what you otherwise could do, you'll be sick in a worse way. And I mean, think about it. And, and if you do that 100 times, you won't know the difference between your illness and your poor character. I mean, this is deep, deep, deep stuff. So what we don't want is we don't want people who are able to come who make excuses because they have the largest hall pass in human history. Because then they become, become the kind of person who make excuses. And that's the bigger problem than not even coming to in-person church. They become that type of person, that begins to define their character. So there's tons of grace, there's tons of truth. Everybody needs a plan, a path, and a pace moving forward, but the plan can't be whenever I feel like it. There has to be, the, 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 the pace can't be, and the path and the plan can't be all by myself. It needs to be in, it needs to be the word of God and wise counsel as the two guardrails. Let's pray together. Lord, we just come to you in Jesus' name right now. We thank you that we celebrated baptisms. We thank you that we celebrated communion last week. Um, Lord, we thank you for a moment where we realize the church is diverse, and everyone talks about diversity today. Well, the church is diverse in that we have people in all different ages and stages. We have people that have anxiety. We have people that are taking care of the elderly. We have people who are immunocompromised. We have people who are vulnerable. We have, we have people who are lazy. We, we, we have people who are scared. We, we have people all over. We have people who don't know what to do and they're just so afraid of what other people think and that's how they make decisions. Or give us grace, give us truth. We ask this in your name, amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus 13. As you type to, turn to Exodus 13, let me kinda catch this up. Part of what I wanna do is give you themes that that you can trace scripture through. Let me give you a couple of themes. Um, As you think through the book of Exodus or think through the larger scripture, here's a theme, meals. Uh, That's one way to understand the whole Bible. It may sound kinda simple, but meals. For example, how how do we get into the trouble that is the sin and fall in rebellion? A meal. Adam and Eve eat a meal they shouldn't have eaten. And because they eat that meal, we fall into sin. That's the first meal. What's the second big meal in scripture? The Passover. We talked about that last week, right? It's a meal that God says, I want you to have this meal to remember my deliverance. That's the main meal that is remembered for the rest of the Old Testament. Then Jesus shows up and what does he say? I want to eat a meal with you guys. And he brings the Lord's supper and he says, actually, I'm going to transform this meal. I'm at the center of it. It's my body. It's my blood given for you. It's the central meal of the church. And then As we look toward eternity, as we look toward heaven, guess what we have? We have a final meal. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Christians have always looked toward that great wedding feast celebration. So it's one way to kind of think through the Bible. And so where we are in the Bible is we just completed the second meal. And they have been sent out of Egypt, if you're catching up. Uh, The Israelites had been enslaved by the Egyptians. God does this incredible meal. Uh, He judges the Egyptians' firstborn. He frees the uh, Israelites from the Egyptians, and they head out. And today we're going to cover chapters 13 and 14. And I want you to see what happens in chapter 13, verse 1. If you'll turn with me to 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses. Now, just think for a second. What is going to be God's first word To Moses, and therefore, to the people of Israel. What is God's first word going to be right after he saves them? Well, let's look what it says. He says this. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, it's interesting. God's first word is that your faith needs to touch your family. That's just an interesting thought. Like, his first word is, hey, here's, okay, we're on the other side of this mass You know Passover and there was judgment and you're going to be free. We're going to get to the Red Sea today as well. But basically, the people are on their way to freedom. And he says, "Here's the first thing you know: your faith needs to touch your family, right?". Because and you go, "Well, why is that?". Because he's talking about the firstborn and the family. It's like, "Well, because that's the real you. It's like you know you're here today and we just you know I don't want to contradict myself. I just talked about for five minutes the importance of weekly worship, and it is very important. But like there's church you and then there's real you. And real you is you at home. Real you is tired you at home. Real you is your guards down at home. Real you is it's been a long day. Real you is it's the weekend." You know, real you is you're at the dinner table. Real you is it's nighttime for the last couple hours before you go to bed. That's real you. And, and for your faith to be real, it has to touch that part of you. Real you is you with your kids when you're frustrated. That's real you. And so what he's saying is, hey, your faith needs to touch your family and your life at home, right? And, and we not realize this during COVID. I mean, COVID has been a really strange time because home became the hub again. It always has been the hub. But like overnight, it's like everybody's, figuring out how to educate their kids. Everybody's like, well, I guess we're cooking at home. (laughs) Right? Or everybody's trying to work from home. Uh, Nobody's traveling, at least for a season. Everything has become home-oriented, and guess how most of us dealt with that? Not very well. Most of us weren't ready for it. Most of us weren't ready to be the spiritual leader in the home. Most of us weren't ready to be the coach or, or whatever, the teacher or whatever, or the cook or whatever we had to be to provide and care for our families. And so God uses this word. Look at it in verse two. Verse one, two, it's the word, or it's verse two it is. The word consecrate. What does consecrate mean? We don't use that word, right? We use the word concentrate, focus on something, not consecrate. Consecrate means I take something ordinary and I set it aside for the Lord. I, I just, it could be my job. It could be my bedroom, he says, here, it should, be, it should be your kids. You take your kid and you go, this is it. And you know what's so interesting? This is why I love expositional preaching, which means walk through verses of the Bible, because I had no idea that when we started this Exodus series, whatever it was, 10 weeks ago, that two weeks before child dedication, we would be in the passage that talks the most about child dedication. This is what this is. If you ever go, why do we dedicate children? This is the verse. Because you, you, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the firstborn, and I want you, which represent the whole family, and I want you to dedicate it to the Lord. And, and that's what a parent does. A parent comes and we dedicate our kids to the Lord. And you may go, well, why do you do that? And that's a fair question. Like, we don't practice baby baptism, right? We baptize, just our church, we baptize believers. That's what we did here. All these people profess faith in Christ that we baptize. But we dedicate children to the Lord. And really what we say is home is the first mission field. That's what we're saying, okay? When we come before the Lord, we're saying, Lord, these are your kids, thank you. I give them back to you and I realize, and this is interesting, this is important to know because this is not what culture tells you. The goal of parenting and not all of your parents, but if you're part of the church, you're going to help us all be parents, okay? So this is why it's a word for everybody. But the goal of parenting is the salvation of your child, okay? Asian culture thinks the goal of parenting is for your child to be successful. That's what Asian culture thinks. They're wrong. It's not a bad goal. Uh, what do Americans think? The goal of parenting is my child be happy and healthy, even if they're headed to hell. But if they're going to express themselves and they're emotionally satisfied and they're having fun, then, you know, then I'm okay with it. The goal of parenting is the salvation of your child. And it's like, well, we know that we can't save our own kids. And so what do we do? We say, Lord, would you do something? And the reason that we do this and the reason that he had it done before the church is like you say, hey, guys, help us. So you're going to see this in two weeks, right? Hel- help us. It takes a church to raise a Christian, and we need everyone together. But, but look, he doesn't just say that. If you look at what he says in verse two, he doesn't say, just dedicate your children to the Lord. I want you to see what he says next. Look again at verse two, consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Okay, so that's your children. And then he says, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. So actually it's a larger principle that we give God our first. And this is such an important principle and I, and I want us to all get this because it's a life-changing principle. Here, here's the principle. If you want God to bless something you put him first in it. It's, it's actually that, it's not easy, but it's that simple, right? People, I'd like God to bless my marriage. I want God to bless my business. I'd like God to bless my finances. I'd like God to bless my schedule. You know, I'd like God to bless my health. I'd like God to bless my kids. It's like, well, then we actually know what you need to do. You know what you need to do. You need to look at scripture and go, well, what does it look like? I'm, I'm dating someone and I'd like it to go well. Well, what do you do? Well, there's a, any number of things you could do, but what about if you put God first in it? Well, I'd, like, I'd like, really like to do well in my career. And what do you do? You put God first in it. You recognize him publicly. If you, I'm giving you an example of dating, if you're dating someone, hey, look, we're gonna, God's gonna be first. We're gonna date the way God says to date. We're gonna, we're gonna stay pure. The goal is marriage. That's the goal of dating or courting or dorting, whatever you wanna call it, okay? But that's the goal of it. You say, that's what I wanna do. You, you, get, you, you go, okay, well, this is why when you enter a season of life, you gotta say, what has God said about this? What does God say about Relationships. What does God say about family? What does God say about parenting? What does God say about kids? What does God say about finances? What does God say about the home? Because you can't put him first in it if you don't know what he says about it. So let me give you three areas that Christians have always put God first. Our day, our week, and our money. That's a good way to think about it. So you, know, you can put God first. You should put God first everywhere, right? And anywhere you find it. But, but Christians have used certain disciplines, we'll get into this in a minute, to say, how do I put God first? Well, you put God first in your day through daily devotions, I don't have a necessarily a verse for you except to say Mark 135, if I do give you a verse. It'd be Jesus getting up early and spending time with the Lord. It doesn't have to be the first thing in the morning. I, I know really godly men and women who they say it's at night. But it's, it's the priority of as I head into the next day, Lord, you're number one in my life. It's the priority of saying, I'm going to set aside some time and I'm going to recognize you. And, and, and again, let me encourage you, it doesn't have to be a long amount of time. It's more important that it be consistent. right? We're gonna get into this in a minute, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an embarrassing Uh, it reveals embarrassing things in us if we had to answer the question, how do we normally spend the first 30 minutes of our day? Right, it usually involves hitting the snooze alarm and randomly being on our phones, usually, in responding to either notifications or emails or social media or news or whatever else. To say, what would it look like to put God first in in my day? It actually begins to give you a set of glasses and a lens to see all of life through. The second is to put God first in your week, and you do that through weekly worship. Now, it's interesting, right? When, When Jesus rose from the dead, they moved the day religious people who worshiped on the same day, right? We know how religious people are. Religious people who worshiped on the same day for thousands of years moved the day of worship. That's how significant the resurrection was. And they moved it from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, Sunday. And so part of the way that you recognize God as first in your life is you, you this is a priority, whether online or in person, this is a priority. And, and let me tell you how that works. It's interesting. I, I had lunch with of a couple of weeks ago, and, and when I have lunch with people from our church, I normally ask, hey, what's you know, tell us, tell me about your time at Two Cities and how's, how's it been and how have you grown and different things. And I'm talking to this, this young man and he said to me, before I came to Two Cities Church, I thought, he merely meant this, I thought he was almost joking. He said, I thought church attendance was optional. He said, I had, you know, I grew up in the church my whole life, so I went to church sometimes and then I didn't go. And then if I went two or three weeks in a row, then I thought I didn't have to go. And I thought, well, this is how people think about it. Which is very different than somebody like Martin Lloyd-Jones. Look him up sometime. He was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. When, when, uh, when they would reach out to Martin Lloyd-Jones and his church, he lives in London, and, uh, and they would ask, they would say, hey, we need, you know, we need counseling, we need marriage counseling, we need help, my kids need help, can you, can you counsel us? He would say, you have to first come for 13 weeks in a row to public worship. I want you and your family in public worship, I want you singing the songs, I want you taking the sacraments, I want you sitting under the word. If you still have the same problems, I'll meet with you. He said most people never need to meet with him. <laughs> We've lost it. I mean, there, there's the power. It's like, well, none of us do that anymore. I knew a church that said you had to be in, in do all that, and in a community group before you could get counseling in the church. It's not that we don't do that here. Don't worry. But, 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 there's a there's a reason for that. It's to say that most problems that we have. I'm not talking about the 15 years of fighting and bitterness and resentfulness in your marriage that you've never dealt with. That needs professional counseling. But we're talking about most people, if they would, they would have a lifestyle of their family has in weekly worship together, in community, under the word, singing the songs, taking the sacraments, kids are in kids ministry, solves almost all your problems. And then the third thing is put God first in your finances. And we all know that. Well, you know you, know you should do that. The difference between doing that. Now it's interesting, I saw a survey recently, millennials were asked uh, if they were generous or not. Now, 29% of millennials said they were very generous. Seventy percent of millennials said they were generous. That's ninety-nine percent of millennials think they're generous. The average millennial last year gave less than fifty dollars to anything, but, but they winked at somebody. I don't know, or they, or they gave somebody, or they gave somebody directions, or they retweeted the right tweet, and they, you know, they were generous. And so what we, the whole idea is, we often don't even know if we, you know. In the way, how do you do that? We say, God, I'm going I'm to make it a priority. And I'm going to choose a percentage. And I, I thank God that you know I, I came to Christ at a young age, well, a fairly young age, for not growing up in a Christian. Home, I, I came to Christ at 16, and I'm so grateful. I was genuinely, my youth pastor taught me: you make a dollar, you give a dime; you make ten, you give a dollar; you make a hundred, you give ten; you make a thousand, you give a hundred; you make ten grand, you give a thousand. Transformed my life. I mean, I can remember. I, did, I learned this at the time I was working at McDonald's. I was making five dollars and fifteen cents in an hour. And I am so grateful that at the early stage of my life, I learned those, these principles and practices. So the first thing he says is, hey, we got to put them first in life. Then I want you to see he says in verse three. Verse three, he moves on. This is, this is the advice to the church right after they're saved. So the first thing is, hey, focus on your home. Put God first. Here's the second thing, verse three. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. So, what he's talking about he says, don't, he says, uh, remember. In other words, don't forget. Now, this is interesting because theologians, and I always like to give you kind of some of this stuff because it's interesting. Theologians talk about what are called the noetic effects of the fall. The noetic effects of the fall are the effects of the fall on the mind. There's about 15 of them. I won't bore you with them all. But, like, one would be ignorance. We don't know things. Inconsistent. We, we say things that aren't true. Um, one of the main noetic effects of the fall on the brain, and on the mind, is forgetfulness. We forget. We forget little things, we forget big things. Sometimes we actively don't want to think about things that we know we need to think about. Sometimes we choose willful, blindful ignorance. And so what God says here is, I want you to remember, and I'm gonna show you what he tells us and how he tells us to remember. Look at verse four. Today in the month of Abib, which meant the month of the spring, you are going out. Verse five. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Termites, and the Jebusites. Just saying if you're paying attention there, okay. Which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. So here's what happens next. God says, I need you to remember me. So I'm gonna give you rituals rhythms and routines, okay? We, we might call them habits. And what he gave the people back then, he gave them feasts, festivals, and fasts. So he basically gives them this unleavened bread festival and he says, hey, you're going to need to remember these things. And look, we're not, we would not be, uh, hear me out on this, we would not be a high church or a very liturgical church, right? When you think of liturgical, think bells and smells, okay? <laughs> think pews and steeples, think priestly garments, Okay? They, we're, I'm not making fun of them, I'm saying that that would be that would be a liturgical church. And, and what's interesting is we have a lot to learn. Most churches historically have been more liturgical, okay? And and we want to learn from them. And, and so the whole idea there was, you know, the church. And, and you know, a lot of times we look back on the past and we can kind of think we're smarter than our ancestors. It's like we're, we're not. We wouldn't be here if our ancestors and our forefathers were dumb. They were really smart, and they they figured out how to capture the Christian faith and pass it on to generations in many ways better than we're doing. And what they would do is they would have all these, like they would create a whole church calendar. Now this is important. The Bible, we're we're a Bible church here. The Bible does not necessitate a yearly calendar. It necessitates a weekly calendar. So you can't read the Bible anywhere in the New Testament and find what would be considered like, you need to celebrate Lent. You need to celebrate Advent. You need to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. You need to, no, none of that. You can do those things. The Bible only necessitates a weekly calendar. Sunday worship, Sunday worship, Sunday worship. That's all it necessitates. But if you think about it, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the rituals of the past. Like, you know, I, I, is anyone else struggle to make Christ the center of Christmas? I mean, our family does. So, you know, Advent is a way that a lot of times then we don't celebrate that as a church and have this whole Advent count, but, but a lot of families do. And they say, this is one of the ways that it helps me make Christ the center. You know, Lent. Now, a lot, a lot of Protestants don't do Lent because they're afraid that they're gonna feel Catholic and all that kind of stuff. But, but the reason that Lent... <laughs> uh-huh. Um... um <laughs> So i you like, yeah, but but, but Lent is, is the way that, that people would say, okay, look, as, as I think about sacrifice, as I think about the suffering of Christ, as I think about the servant-hearted nature of what he did, I need to put something in my life that would make me remember it. Now, I remember I was a new Christian. I was talking to a guy at work. This was years ago when I was in high school. And, uh, and he said to me, guess what I'm giving up for Lent? And I said, what? He said, marijuana. I said, hmm, <laughs> praise, praise the Lord. I don't know if you fully get the idea of this whole, Okay, but, but he was trying, okay. But the whole idea is that God, God has put into our life rhythms, er, you know, rituals, rhythms, routines to try to help us. Now, here's the truth. We all have rhythms, rituals, and routines in our life. That's, that's kind of the humbling reality, right? Like one of the, if you wanna create new rhythms and rituals and routines in your life, which I think we all need, and honestly, it'd be a great thing as we kind of come out of COVID, right? Because this is interesting, right? When, when they're coming out of something into a whole new season, the first thing God says is, you need new rhythms and rituals. It's like, wow, okay, well, we're kind of getting out of COVID a little bit. There's a new normal, there's a next normal. January is coming, 2021's coming. It's like, okay, well, how do we put new rhythms and routines in? Well, first of all, here's what you have to do. First, you have to understand what is your current rhythms and routines? And one of the things you have to do is you have to watch yourself. Like, this is hard to do. I have actually been doing this this week in preparation, but you have to watch yourself like you don't know yourself. You have to watch yourself, like watch your life like you're a stranger to yourself. And go, why do I do everything that I do? And let me just ask you a couple questions. I mean, these are some things to talk about on the way home or talk about with your community group. So, because you want to think about what are your current rhythms and rituals and routines, okay? Because for most of us, they're ruts, okay? They're not, they're not super helpful. So here's a couple questions. What do you do when you first get up in the morning? I think most people, I could be wrong. I think most people hit the snooze once or twice, grab their phone, continue to lay in bed, or get in a comfy chair, and spend the first who knows how long doing who knows what they're doing on their devices. I mean, it could be read the news, it could be check politics stuff, it could be check Twitter, it could be on social media. Sometimes we don't even know what we're doing, right? It's like, what am I doing? You got in some YouTube hole, you know, you're, you're, you're there for 30 minutes, you're like, what was I watching? Or, or here's another, I mean, what, what do you do every time you get in the car? You do something, I mean, most of us do the same thing. Whatever it is, you put something on, right? What what do you do as soon as you come home from work? I'm just giving you some examples. What does your family meal with your family look like? You know, is it like everybody's kind of on their device and everybody's watching TV and it lasts five minutes and what does your time putting, those of us who have kids, putting your kids to bed? Is it like get to bed immediately, please? Well, that's our ritual. Uh, no more water, you can't possibly be that thirsty, go to bed. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you know, and then, and then I'm really concerned about, I mean, genuinely, think with me about this and we could talk more about this in weeks to come as we think about our rituals and routines, but I mean, I really think the average American, I'm not necessarily saying everyone at this church, but I think the average American ends up having two to three hours every night, discretionary time, two to three hours. Let's say you put your kids to bed at 7.30 or 8 o'clock if you have young kids or you don't have kids and so you finish eating and you do whatever you need to do and then it's finally your time. What is the long-term effects of the vast majority of people spending the last three hours of their day drinking alcohol and watching streaming services until they fall asleep. It's really quiet in here. I mean, I, I just—I mean, that's, what, that's what most people do. It might be what most of you do, or drop the alcohol, it's just, it's just drink a sugary drink, or drink something, and then, and then stay up for three or four hours, often longer than you planned, so then also you're too tired in the morning. It's like, okay, only one season tonight, guys. Okay, <laughs> we're going to bed. Um, but well, I, don't know, I don't know the long-term effects of all those things, but I think if we were to be honest say, okay, well, what does it mean to try to have something that looks like healthy rituals in our life? This is what God wanted them to have. Here, I'll, I'll show you. He, he gives a couple examples here. Look at, um, look at verse eight. He says this. He says, you shall tell your son on that day. So it's interesting. He assumes family conversation, eye-to-eye contact conversation uh, between a father and a son or families. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord had brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. So this is interesting. Now, the Jews, from that idea where he says, you know, put it on your forehead, put it on your hand, they get this idea of what are called, you can look this up later if you're interested, phylacteries. Phylacteries were literally boxes that Orthodox Jews use to this day. They have a box on their forehead, and they have a box on their arm, on their wrist. Looks like, almost like a watch, and it has four verses in it. A verse, two verses from Exodus 13, two verses from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's their way to have kind of a visual reminder and also to remind them to have conversations with their family. Now, you know, you think, again, Again, I don't want to spend too, too much time on this, but you just think about how, how we do things with our families. And, you know, the role of devices, like one of the interesting things is, as you, you know, and my kids are still fairly young, eight, six, and four, but you start to see the habits you don't like in yourself in your kids. So, like, you know, I can't remember, this was not that long ago, like a month or so ago. Our daughter, Addie, we're not, like, super watch TV all the time stuff, and we're not, you know, we're... we're, we're we're perfect in this area. We're normal and average. But, but, but I walk in and my daughter, she doesn't have an iPad, but she was using one of our iPads. She was on her iPad doing something while watching TV. And I was like, gross. You're on it. And I'm like, that's what I do all the time. I, what is wrong with me? I have to be on multiple devices. I need to consume something while I'm also doing something else over here. And you know, and by the way, what a device does is it splits your presence, right? That's what it does if you're with another human. You can't be fully present with your device. So we have to figure out rituals of relaxing. We're pretty good at that. We need rituals of relating. Like what would be a ritual? Like, you know, most spouses are very good at relaxing. Here's your iPad, here's my iPad. I mean, or let's watch something together till we fall asleep. That's a ritual of relaxing. We're not anti-relaxing. But rituals of relating are harder. How do I relate to each my family, how do I relate to God? There's a, a book I would highly recommend, highly, highly, highly recommend. Gave it to all of our staff, I believe it was last year, called The Common Rule. It's written by a lawyer, Christian lawyer. And he said he had a ritual he put in his life. And the whole book's about eight eight of them. I'll just tell you one real quick. He said he put into his life the ritual of kneeling prayer three times a day. So he would set an alarm. It, well, one would be right before he went to bed. One would be uh, right when he got up. And then one would be in the middle of the day. And he said, waking up, and the first thing in the morning, he said, it would take him just a minute or two, but him getting out of bed, and the first thing he does is his knees hit the ground. You can kind of imagine what that might be, and some of you might do this, but he said, it just, it does something to me physically. Because right, what you see here is put the boxes, I mean, have physical reminders. He says, the cold floor on my knees in the early morning and a little bit of the pain is good for me. He says, and I just pray to the Lord for a few minutes, and then I get up. He says, and the hardest one is, he says, I'm a lawyer, and I got my office, and my alarm goes off at noon to pray. And he says, I awkwardly go over and I lock the door. And I get in the corner of my office. He says, and I'm in my suit and I kneel. And he says, and it's awkward. He said, but it's awkward in the best sense of the word because it just reminds me about a minute in the middle of my day. I'm not my own. I belong to God. God's God's got this. The reason that I'm a lawyer, the reason that I'm here is ultimately for a greater purpose. He says, it doesn't take a long time. But it was a rhythm and ritual in his life. And then right before he goes to bed, it's like it just just sinks his life up. Right before I go to bed, I'm gonna do that. So we need rhythms, routines, rituals. I, I, I commend to you a book like The Common Rule that'll help you. Here's what he says next. So he, then he talks about conversation. Look at this, verse, chapter 13, verse 14. He says, and when in time your son asks you, so he assumes that our Christian faith is so evident that our children will ask questions about the practices in our life because of our faith. And, in this, and when in time uh, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. I love it. Live in such a way that your kids ask questions. You know, kids, kids ask the, the darndest things, don't they? Uh, I, got, I got a six year old son and the other day he asked us, I don't know where this came from. He said, he was, we're in driving the car, he said, mom, dad, he said, what is the smallest mountain on earth? I said, I have no idea how to answer that question. It would be like a little hill. I don't know what it would, but it was a sweet question. It's like, they're always, they're always thinking about things, you know? And, and, and this is, by the way, this is, this is good for you guys to know these things, for all of us to know these things. This is the first idea of catechisms in the Bible. So again, again, we, we, that we may think that's a weird thing, but historically, catechisms, catechizing, the idea that there's a back and forth question and answer nature that we do things. Like I did this with my family. Again, I recommend this resource, New City Catechism. It's a great resource for, to help catechize, catechize your children, which is basically to help them memorize truths of scripture. And I haven't done this in a while, but there was a season when, when, when our daughter was four where I took them through the New City Catechism. And the first question is, of the catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? Which is a strange thing to ask a four-year-old, okay? <laughs> and the response to it is even more strange, or not strange, but even more biblical. The, the response that you teach them is, um, that I am not my own, but I belong to God. It's like, wow. And you realize when you see it, you realize there's all these deep ideas that Christians long before us have thought of that to help us pass on the faith to the next generation. So that, that the whole first thing is he says, I want you to put me first and then you need rhythms, rituals, routines to keep me first, to remember and recognize me. Here's the next thing he says. Look at me at verse 17. Then he begins to lead them. After he says, okay, I want you to remember me. I want you to have rituals, rhythms, routines. It says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. Now, that would have been a much shorter journey. That would have, they estimate, estimate, uh, would have taken something like two weeks for them to get to their location. It's going to end up taking them 40 years, okay? (laughs) Just slightly longer, okay? So God's going to take them the long way. I want you to see this. Uh, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and returned to Egypt, but God led people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. A couple things to notice here. If you read this, in, and I won't, I won't throw a, a map of Israel and stuff up here, okay, but if you, if you were to see this, what you'll realize is that God doesn't always lead us, and this is so true for our life, because by the way, uh, the, the story of Israel after they've been saved out of Egypt is a parable and picture of what the Christian life's like. What, right? We need to remember, and then God doesn't often lead us the way, he thinks, the, the way we think he should. God doesn't often lead us the shortest way. God doesn't often lead us the easiest way. God often lovingly leads us the long way. And I think there's a couple principles. One, God's not in a hurry. We often are, right? I mean, does anybody else try to beat their GPS all the time right? It says this time, it's like, no, we can get there quicker. We can definitely beat that by five or 10 minutes. It's like, what am I doing? I don't know. We just, we just want to get places. We want, we, we it's part of it's the American spirit. We love productivity. We love efficiency. We love getting places quickly. We love doing things well and, and getting them done quickly. And so what you see is, well, actually, and, and, and God tells us a couple different reasons why he does this, but here's the big reason, because God's more concerned with making you into a type of person than getting you to a certain place. And that is so freeing if you realize that. It's like, because what you realize is, first of all, God did it to protect them because he says other places, hey, the, you're not ready for battle. The Philistines will kill you. So sometimes God leads you the long way. You're like, well, why did it take me this long to get married or to find my career or you know, whatever it is or to have kids or to, you know, or to find, you know, find a good friend. It's like, well, I don't know all the answers to those questions, right? There's, it's complex. But one of the answers oftentimes is, okay, well, God was maybe God was protecting you here we see protection. Here's another thing. God says that often he leads us the long way. He says this in the book of Deuteronomy. At the very end, he goes, hey, guys, here's why I led you the long way, to humble you and show you what's in your heart. It's like, well, that's, you know, okay. I, if it was easy and we got there right away, I would have, you know, thought that it was all me maybe. And I wouldn't realize that I'm, as we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks, that I'm a complainer. That's what Israel does. Chapter 16 and chapter 17, we'll get there. All it is is complaining internally and fighting internally with one another. It's like, well, that's unfortunate. That's a lot of church life. It's a lot of family life. It's not the right way it should be. But uh, what you see here is um, in, in this time, they need to trust the Lord to say, okay, he's lovingly leading us the long way. He's doing it to protect us, to humble us. Uh, here's another way that, that I've heard it said, that God's more committed to you relationally than destinationally. You know, we're always thinking, well, where am I going? Where will I be in five years? Where will I be in 10 years? I mean, those are great questions I would recommend thinking, them. but what type of person will I be? This is one of the most freeing things is often to realize the process is more important even than the decision sometimes. You know, a lot of times we'll talk to people back, I remember back in my, my college ministry days, we would, we would be asking people to come and come away for the summer with us to the Beach Project to grow. And it would be like two, they'd have to raise money. They'd have to tell their parents they were going to go. They'd have to move down for two months. And it was a lot, it was a big deal. And we would always say, and, and, I, and I really meant that, I'd say, hey, look, what's more important is the process that you walk with God through to make this decision than the actual decision. If you come back and say, I don't want to go to the beach project. I don't think God's leading me there, but I prayed about it. Maybe I fasted about it. I sought wise counsel. I checked my own heart motives. And I genuinely don't think it's best for me. Then I praise the Lord because I'm going to trust the process is even more important than the final outcome and decision. And that's part of what's happening. There's a whole process God's taken them through. And I want you to see how God leads them. Look at verse 19. It says this, Moses took the bones of Joseph, this is a reminder of the book of Exodus, with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth. And you may say, where is Succoth? It's in West Virginia. Oh, I'm scared. Um, <laughs> and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Um, verse 21, and the Lord, this is a great lesson on leadership, and the Lord went before them, Right? Some of you go, I wanna be a leader. This is a great example of what it means to be a leader. You're not a leader by getting behind people and saying, get over there. You're not a leader by getting behind people and poking them and prodding them. You're a leader in your home or in your business or in your family or in your friends by going ahead of people. You go ahead of people, you go, here I am. I've already already faced these giants. I'm gonna go ahead of you and I'm gonna call you to follow me as I follow Christ. Well, here's what it says. It says, the Lord went behind them It says, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So a couple of interesting things. First of all, this is the first GPS in the Bible. Here we go, okay? We, you know, Gar- we think Garmin and TomTom came out with the first GPS. No, it was God. Okay, we have a pillar of fire, we have a cloud. Now, this is interesting because it does two things, direction and protection. It's direction, which is what you'd think. It's like, well, I need a fire at night because I can't see, and I need a cloud at day, and that helps me know. And but it was also protection because at night, it gets very cold, what would you need for warmth? Fire. During the day, it gets very, very hot in the desert, what would you need? Clouds. Now, we, we love this, we read this, and some of you go, I wish God would just put a cloud over who I should marry. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wish God would put a pillar of fire over the job I should take, right? We, we love that. We think, wow, that's amazing. Well, what's interesting is you know they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have the Bible. What we have today, I would argue, is something even better. We have the word of God and the spirit of God. That's how God leads us today. And it's really, really important because, I mean, the, the Christian faith becomes real to you when you realize I have the word of God and the spirit of God. And let me explain how they work together. The word of God is the objective, fixed, written down, unchangeable um, I already said the word, but objective word of God. It's like, it's fixed, it, you know, you, you read it, but then God gives us an objective word and he gives us a personal subjective spirit that applies it to our situations, right? And you wanna be open to both. So when you read the scriptures and it says, you know, you may read it and it says, forgive someone. And you say, all right, Lord, well, it says forgive it. You know, that's the objective word of God. And then, and then you know, you hear the spirit say to your heart, I'm talking about your father. Or you read it and it says, bear one another's burdens. It says, I'm talking about your neighbor next door. You know, you read, you read, you read uh, Ephesians 5 and it talks about sacrificing for your wife. And, and you know you're thinking enough about it and say, I'm talking about the way that you're planning your schedule and you're thinking about the next year. That's what I'm talking about. In Christianity, it gets strange when we try to follow the spirit apart from any word. We just start doing whatever we feel like we want to do. That's very dangerous. And we get in all kinds of trouble. It, it, it becomes overly academic and overly knowledge-based when we think we just need to know Bible verses and not let it personally touch our heart and speak to our lives. And I'm just telling you, the most exciting, the most thrilling, and the best sense of the some of the most adventurous Christianity is when we let the word of God and the spirit of God speak to us together, which is why prayer and the posture of our heart as we approach the word of God says, God, I'm, I'm not gonna change anything this says and I want to know what it says, and I want to know how it applies to my current circumstances, and I want you to tell me things that I probably don't want to hear. That's when when repentance takes place. That's where change takes place. So God God says, look, I want you to put me first. I want you to remember me, and then I want you to follow me. And look where he leads them. Look at verse, uh, it goes into chapter 14. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, now we're headed toward the Red Sea. Tell the people of Israel, turn back and encamp in front of Perhathron, between Magold, in the sea, in front of Zephon. And by the way, if you don't know how to say a word, you say it quickly and confidently. That's how you say it. <laughs> I'll probably say those words differently in every service. Okay, here we go. Um, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Verse three, for Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, this is interesting. I don't have time to talk about this at great length. The first place God leads them is into a valley. I mean, it's an interesting thought. Because sometimes people think, as soon as I come to the Lord, as soon as God saves me, uh, my life is going to go very, very good. And then you go home, and you tell your parents you're following Christ, and they say, why are you doing that? You're already Christian. That's dumb. You tell your, your, your friends that you're going to, you know, you're following Christ now and you're gonna try to live a pure life and they say, well, that's stupid. You know, and you, t- you tell your friends, hey, I'm committed to the church now and, the, and, and your friends say, well, why would you give up half your weekend? You, you just, you know, who knows what else? Or, you, you know, all of a sudden you come to Christ and then someone in your family gets sick. And you go, well, Lord, I, didn't, I, thought when you can, I thought everything went well. It's like, well, actually, I love the honesty of the Bible. The first place that God leads them is into a valley and then really, and you'll see this as we, as we look at this in a minute, into a trap where it looks like everything's coming against them. They're going to have to trust the Lord. They're going to have to see the salvation of the Lord in a way that they hadn't even seen it up till now. Let's, let's follow the story, verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So they have Pharaoh and his men, they have a change of mind, right? And we know this, that underneath all of slavery, even below racism, which is a sin and terrible, is greed. The number one reason people enslave other people is they are greedy, and then they dehumanize them. That's what they do. And so he is becoming incredibly greedy. He says, this is it, we've gotta go get these people. Our whole economic system is gonna fall and fail if we don't get them. Verse six, so he made ready his chariot. Now, chariot back then would have been like an F-15 fighter pilot. You cannot escape these things. This would have been, this is a death sentence. It says this. So he made his chariot and he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all, uh, pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them encamped at the sea by Behithron in front of, Baal there you go. Um, verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So this is it. They've got the Egyptians behind them. They have the Red Sea in front of them, right? Completely trapped. Egyptians behind them, Red Sea in front of them. It says this, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it looks good. It's like, all right, they're in trouble. They're, gonna pray. they're new Christians. They're gonna pray to the Lord. What are they gonna say? They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. We'll get into this in a couple weeks. That's not what they said. They're already forgetting it. They're already looking back on the past and thinking it's better. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I'm gonna get into this in a couple of weeks as we look at chapter 16 and 17 are all about complaining. So let me just pause it for a moment but say one thing. What does it take in your life for you to start complaining and stop believing? Like, what is it? It's like, you know, you're loving the Lord. It's just going well. Maybe you're gonna sing a song afterwards. You're like, all right, Lord, I wanna follow you. What has to happen in your life? Some of us, it is the smallest thing and all of a sudden, we're not trusting the Lord. We stop believing and we start complaining. We're gonna look at this in a couple of weeks. But this is our heart. And so Moses gives them this word. This is a powerful word. I want you to see this. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silenced. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses... Why do you cry to me? Very interesting. There's a couple times in Scripture, only a couple, where God basically says, stop praying about this. It's like one of those things you read, you go, interesting. You already know what to do. You know, it's like there's a lot of things in life we don't need to pray about. Do you need to repent of that sin? You don't need to pray about it. Yes. Right? Do you need to be reconciled? Yes, you do. I mean, there's so many. Should you share your faith? Yes, you don't need to pray about it. I mean, you can. I'm just saying the Scripture is so clear he says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19, then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them and coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. It's interesting. What gave light to the Israelites gave darkness to the Egyptians. Often God will use the same thing, right? We love the word of God and a non-believer can't understand and only frustrates them. The Puritans used to say the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. That God uses the same thing often for different purposes in different people's lives. Now he takes the cloud and it's darkness for them. It says this, then Moses stretched out, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. This is actually a reference back to creation. What does God do at creation? He separates land from sea. If you read the Bible as one great story, if you understand Genesis was about God separating land from sea to creation, this is the new creation of the church. As God creates a new people, the language of creation happens again. It says this, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire in the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Uh, Two things. One, we see the chariots, which was their strength, is what gets them stuck. And second, it's the first time we see the Egyptians call God Yahweh. They call him the Lord. But the people, verse 29, of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on to the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Look at this, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus ends chapter 14, here's, here's, here's the big idea. that From that moment on, the exodus becomes the defining event for the Israelites. All that we'll see this next week, they start singing songs about it, they start telling their children about it, it, it is. It is the main event for the rest of the Old Testament that God saves sinners through a decisive act one time through which he saves them and judges another which is the great reminder of what the cross is. For the Christian, the cross is our Exodus. It is our Red Sea event. It is what changes the past and into the present. That's why we say BC and AD. It's all about the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God decisively dealt with our sin. See, what Jesus Christ did is he stepped in and he took all of the wrath. What God did is he poured out the Red Sea. <laughs> you can think of it that way. He pulled out the Red Sea on Jesus Christ. And see, here's what he says, right? If you look back in chapter 14, you don't need to go there right now. What he says right before he delivers people, and this is the same thing we'd say to all of us today. He says, see the salvation of the Lord. He doesn't say work for it. He doesn't say you're gonna need to earn this right now. In fact, what we see of the first people is they were fearful, they were unbelieving, they were complaining, God saved them anyway. And as we think about it, what it says, what do we do? How do you become a Christian? I wanna tell you you, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, how do you do it? You look to what Jesus Christ has done for sinners in his life, death, resurrection, and you welcome it and you invite it into your life as the most important thing ever. That's it. You go, I don't need to earn this. I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to welcome it and I'm going to celebrate it and I'm going to remember it and I'm going to publicly identify with it and I'm going to tell other people about it. That's what it means to see the salvation of the Lord. And that's the call to the non-Christian. The call to the Christian is what are the rhythms rituals and routines you need to put in your life. And some of you, it just needs to be one thing, right? You know, it, it, God's going to give them over the course of time, many rhythms and rituals and routines. But it's like, we can't, you can't handle, I can't handle changing 10 things in my life right now. But for some of you, you just, your morning needs to look different. For some of you, your weekly worship needs to be more of a priority. For some of you, if you would put God in your finances, oh man, it would change your whole life. And, and the final thing is, you know, we need to see, because this is gonna be the, this is gonna be the, the tests and temptation of Israel for the rest of the time, what will they do now with their freedom? They're now completely free. He says the Egyptians will never, you'll never see them again. They've experienced the Passover. They've experienced the Red Sea. Now they have all this freedom. And here's the thing with freedom. Freedom biblically is not something we are to play with. It's something we're to build with. It's something we're to say, I'm gonna use all of my freedom for the glory of God and for the good of other people. That's our hope as a church and individually as we head into 2021. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for some really important reminders today. Lord, for some of us, we just need to stop right now and we just need to recognize you as first in our life. And it needs to show up in our budget. It needs to show up in our schedule. It needs to show up in our daily rhythms, habits, and routines. Lord, Some of us, we just need to, right now, we just need to tell you what habit we're going to start doing or maybe what habit we're gonna stop doing. How our days and how our weeks are gonna look different. Lord, help us to use our freedom, not as an excuse to sin, not as something to play with casually, but something to build a life and a legacy with. Something that would glorify you and be good for other people. We ask this in your name. Amen.